Well, good morning. Uh, This morning's reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 3, uh, verses 13 to 22, and it can be found on 1219 of the um, Greeny Blue Bibles, uh, page 1219. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism, that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Richard, thank you so much for reading our passage. Allow me to begin by uh, praying for us. Father, we thank you so much that we can uh, gather this morning as a body of believers, as a family uh, in your Son. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. Thank you that we have your word. Uh, Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Father, we pray that we'd be able to uh, concentrate on what, you ha- on what you have to say to us. And Father, we pray that we would live in light of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently read in the paper about a boy in a C of E primary school in Cornwall who started going to school dressed as a girl. And this led to a Christian couple, uh, parents of two young boys, uh, deciding to raise their concerns with the school staff. Uh, The school then replied by sending them a letter which stated that an inability to believe a transgender person is actually a real female or male is transphobic. An inability to believe a transgender person is actually a real female or male is transphobic. 
what does our society make of Christian views of sexuality and gender? It despises them, doesn't it? Because we believe what the Bible teaches about sexuality and gender, we are increasingly treated with vitriol and slapped with labels such as transphobes, homophobes, bigots. And it doesn't look like this antagonism towards Christians is going to go away anytime soon. The chasm here in the West between Christian values and progressive secular ones is widening, not shrinking. So what are we to do? No doubt we will face increasing pressure from various corners of society to to get with the program, to bend our outdated views. But bending our views is not an option as Bible-believing Christians, is it? The moment we do that, we we cease to be Bible-believing Christians. So what should we do? How should we respond to people's animosity against us simply for believing God's word and trying to live in line with it? Today's passage will help us think this through. And the question we're addressing today is, what do you do when you're despised for being a Christian? What do you do when you're despised for being a Christian? And our first point is, be Christ-fearing. Be Christ-fearing fearing. I want us to notice the Apostle Peter's question in verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? I'll admit that when I first read this question, it, 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 it puzzled me. Um, Peter, has, has, said, has earlier said in, in this letter that doing good, that is that living as Christians, can lead to suffering. So, for example, in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, If you suffer for doing good and endure it, uh, this is commendable before God. So, Peter can't be saying that living Christianly will cause us to avoid persecution or suffering. Indeed, you might have noticed there in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for what is right... You are blessed. So what does Peter mean by his question in verse 13? I think he means that, generally speaking, when we live good lives as Christians, people will not be offended and want to persecute us. For example, following Jesus' teaching to love others, to, to, to help the downtrodden, to turn the other cheek, is unlikely to cause too much offense. Though, uh, that said, even someone like George Muller, uh, who, who built an orphanage in Bristol and helped educate thousands of orphans, received criticism. People accuse him of raising, people, raise, raising the poor above their natural station in life. Now, here's the point I, I think Peter is making. Whether or not you suffer for living a a godly life, continue to live a godly life. Whether or not you suffer for living a godly life, continue to live 
a godly life. Peter then, then takes this a step further by saying, if you suffer for living a godly life, you are blessed. Now, why, why does Peter need to say that it is blessed to suffer, suffer that it is blessed to be persecuted? I think he says it because he knows that when we are persecuted, we do not think we are blessed. In fact, we're more likely to think we're, we're cursed. And the persecution we face can cause us to question how we're living our lives. It can cause us to question whether living a godly life is actually worth it. Peter wants us to know that it is worth it. And he shows us how to endure the persecution that comes from living a godly life. Look with me at at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. How does... Peter teaches us to continue living a godly life when we're, when we're pressured not to. He tells us to fear Christ instead of man. When people mock us or ostracize us for living as Christians, it's extremely hard not to be affected by it. We naturally want our colleagues, our friends, and our family members to, to like us to approve of us. Only sociopaths aren't at all bothered about what people think about them. It's because we care what people think about us that we don't like being despised, that we don't like being put to the side, that we don't like being mocked, that we don't like being gossiped about, that we don't like being slandered. Instinctively, we care what people think about us. And it is this that can make us shy away from living a godly life. So we reason internally, uh, because living a godly life might cause people to dislike or hate me, maybe I shouldn't bother with it. Peter knows this. So he says, stop fearing, man. Stop fearing what people Think of you. And stop fearing what people can say or do to you. Instead, fear Christ. Replace your fear of man with a fear of Christ. To put it slightly differently, instead of caring about what people think, care about what Jesus thinks. When you live a godly life and people disapprove, be reassured that the one whose opinion most matters does not disapprove, but approves. When you receive the world's disapproval, be comforted by Christ's approval. We'll see later on in in our passage uh, why it is or how it is that Christ approves of us. Now, notice what Peter says we should expect when we live as those who fear Christ over man. Look at me halfway through uh, verse 15. 
always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. What does Peter suggest might happen if we live godly lives because we fear Christ instead of, pe- instead of fearing people? He seems to suggest that we, we might be asked about our faith. People might ask us, why do you live the way you do? And that is precisely the type of question we, we want to be asked. It's an opportunity to speak about Christ and about the difference he makes to our lives. Now, it's also possible that people might ask you slightly more provocative questions. For example, someone might ask, why do you hold to such antiquated views on gender and sexuality? Or even more pugnaciously, why are you so bigoted? I think it's fair to assume that Peter is implying that we should expect provocative questions more than we do polite ones. Notice how he says in verse 15, we should respond to people's questions. Notice how he says it there. Look look with me at the end of verse 15. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Friends, how does Peter say we should respond to people's questions? He says we should do so with gentleness and respect. Now, it would hardly be necessary for him to say that if he were expecting people to ask us polite questions. I think he probably says it because he knows that people will ask us challenging questions. Questions which might be intended to embarrass us or make us feel uncomfortable. And look, when we face those types of questions, how are we tempted to respond? With gentleness and respect? Of course not. We're probably tempted to snap back. This is why Peter tells us to to respond with grace. Now here's why Peter thinks it's so vital that we respond with grace. When we respond with grace, we can have a clear conscience. That's because we we haven't reacted in a way that might cause us to feel ashamed or guilty. But there's, there's another potential benefit to responding graciously. It can cause the other person to go away and reflect on how they've treated or spoken to you. If you're rude to someone when they're rude to you, what's likely to happen? It'll probably just cause them to feel justified for the way they spoke to you. But if you're gentle, it's more likely to baffle them. And and it might cause them to think to themselves, gosh, I can't believe I spoke to them that way and they still treated me with such respect. I'm so embarrassed. It's in moments like those that your behavior 
has the power to speak loudly and perhaps even positively change their perception of Christianity. About, um, about 10 years ago or so, a non-Christian student attended a university Christian union meeting. And during the meeting, he stood up and shouted at the person giving the talk because he'd said that only those who believe in Jesus could be saved. The man giving the talk remained calm and responded with grace, gently answering uh, the student's pointed and hostile questions. By the grace of God, that non-Christian student later became a believer and is now a minister of the gospel in a church in central London. Now imagine if instead of responding with grace, the speaker had also flown off the handle. I suspect it would have made a very different impact on that student. Brothers and sisters, what do you do when you're despised for being a Christian? Be Christ-fearing. When you fear Christ instead of man, you'll be more likely to bear up under persecution. Because it's Christ, not people, you're seeking to please. But this isn't the, the only thing that's going to help us when we're mistreated for our faith. We also need to be Christ-focused. Our second point is be Christ-focused. Being Christ-fearing can help us endure through suffering for living as Christians. But maybe there's a part of us that questions, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? In the first half of our passage, Peter spoke about our suffering. But in the second half, he he transitions to Christ's suffering. Have a look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Why does, why does Peter bring up Christ's suffering? It's not as though he hasn't already spoken about it uh, in this letter. We also saw it in chapter 2, verse 21, where he said, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Why is Peter mentioning Christ's suffering again? While in chapter 2, Peter's emphasis was on the example of Christ's suffering, here his, his emphasis is on its outcome. Now, what is it that Jesus' suffering accomplished? Our salvation. It's Christ's death that Peter says brings you to God. So is suffering for living as a Christian worth it? Yes. The righteous one suffered for the unrighteous. That's you and me. So that we could be brought into God's presence. Sounds to me like it's 
worth it. Now, one reason I suspect uh, people might not think it's worth it is because they don't fully appreciate just how amazing a relationship with God is. One that we get to enjoy both now and in eternity. Friends, Christ's suffering has accomplished our salvation. Now, I think, I think it's his salvation that will help us make sense of some of the trickier verses in our passage. Verses 19 and 20 are some of the hardest verses to interpret in the entire New Testament. And we don't have time to explore their various possible meanings. Uh, let's read from the end of verse 18, and then I'll try to explain what I think is going on here. So, end of verse 18. Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Right out of the gate, uh, I want to explain what I think these verses don't mean. So some of you might be familiar with the clause in the uh, Apostles' Creed, uh, which says that Jesus descended into hell. Some people take that, verse, that clause to mean that on Easter Saturday, uh, Jesus was in hell preaching to the souls there so that they might repent and be saved. But here's the thing. Nowhere in the Bible are we taught that people have an opportunity to repent after they've died. Rather, the Bible frequently teaches us to repent while there is still time. That is, while we're still alive or before Christ returns. There is zero biblical basis for believing these verses teach that people will have an opportunity to, to repent after death. The time to repent is now, in this life, not after death. By the way, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm delighted that you're here. But please allow me to, to encourage you to encourage you not to delay repenting of your sin and putting your trust in Jesus. There will not be a second chance after death. The chance you have to repent is now. So please don't delay it. As a side note, if, um, in case you're wondering what Jesus' descent into hell in the Apostles' Creed uh, actually means, I think it simply means that he, he died. The clause, he descended into hell, could also be translated, he descended to the dead. The point it's making is that Jesus really died on Good Friday. I think he descended to the dead is a better and far more helpful uh, translation. Okay, so what do verses 19 to 20 actually mean then? 
I think Peter is saying in this passage that Jesus declared his victory over evil through his death, resurrection, and ascension. And I think his, his ascension in particular is in view here. So in verse 22, Peter says that Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Brothers and sisters, Christ's ascension shows that he's victorious over every evil power. His ascension is, is in a sense, a, a victory parade. But who was this victory parade for? Who was Jesus displaying his victory to? Verse 19 says that it was to the imprisoned spirits. Now, who on earth are they? And I'll be honest, I, I don't think we can be 100% sure on who these imprisoned spirits are. Um, but for what it's worth, I think they're the fallen angelic beings we read about in Genesis chapter 6. If you've read that chapter before, you might have noticed this bizarre account of uh, the sons of God uh, believed to be fallen angels marrying women. It's really odd. But anyway, in, in that, after that passage, immediately after that account, we read of God's condemnation of the world because it had become so wicked and corrupt. And what did God do in response? He sent the flood in judgment. So I think Peter here is, is alluding to that event in Genesis 6, which is why he also mentions Noah. The, the fallen angelic beings caused so much havoc that God flooded the whole world. So Jesus' ascension is demonstrating to those fallen angelic beings, the imprisoned spirits, that they have lost the war. Christ is on his throne and he is Lord of all. Now, how exactly are these verses going to help us today uh, here in Bansted? Well, we need to remember that Christ has conquered evil. When we face suffering for being Christians, we can so easily be tempted to think that the world is winning, that evil is winning. But it's not. Christ has already won. And just as Noah was saved despite the, the evil that abounded in his day, we can be sure that we too will be, will be saved despite the evil that abounds in our own. I think there are many more parallels between us and Noah. People in Noah's day would have thought he was a freak for believing that a flood was coming and building this ark in the middle of nowhere, nowhere near water. People today might think we're freaks for believing what we believe. But just as God saved Noah and his family, 
God will save us too. Friends, let's focus on Christ's victory. We're on the winning team. That will help us endure through suffering for living as Christians. And brothers and sisters, let's be those who are Christ-fearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that when we face um, persecution um, for being Christians, we, we want to run away. Um, we, we're tempted to stop living in a distinctive, godly way. Uh, we're tempted to just blend in. But Father, we know that that is the worst thing we can do. If we just blend in, people are not going to ask us any questions about our faith. They're going to think we're just exactly like them. So Father, we do pray that you'd cause us to fear your Son over people. Cause us to care about what he thinks rather than what people think. And Father, we pray that you cause us also to, to focus on Christ's victory. He's won. We're on the winning team. So suffering for Christ is indeed worthwhile. And Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.